Morning, church. It's great to be with you all this morning. My name is Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, this is so much fun. Our first all-church gathering for the summer. It's great to see all the faces that I would normally see across the different expressions. It is awesome. I'm glad that you all made it out here. Um, if you have your Bibles, would you open them and turn with me to John chapter 17? While I say that, I, uh, I, I want to further extend a happy Father's Day to you dads out there. Now, while you're turning to, to John chapter 17, I'm having you turn there because a few weeks ago I, I, had, I saw this, this cartoon picture that just struck my attention and just kind of captivated my imagination for a minute. And it was a really weird cartoon, so I'll just describe it to you. I didn't really want to put it up. Is this cartoon of this person underground in this kind of cave-like thing, where is this frail-looking person sitting in a big cushy chair, looking at with TVs all surrounding this cave, and he had like a funnel thing attached to his head, and into the funnel was going like different types of social media, like Instagram, Facebook, all sorts of stuff, and. He's sitting there surrounded by all of these TVs and the social media and stuff, and and in the side, this cartoon is this kind of movement of him moving from this cave that he's in up out of the ground and up into the surface of the earth where there's sunshine shining on him, and he kind of becomes looking like a different person. And I thought to myself, that's kind of true. I kind of feel that way sometimes, being kind of bogged down or surrounded by various things. And when I said those words, that's true, I instantly desired something truer than true. I desired a deeper reality, a deeper truth that I wanted to seek and remind myself of as I was going out into my day. This morning, John chapter 17 helps us see a truer than true reality, and it is this, that Jesus prays for us. So if you have John chapter 17 open, this is a a really beautiful moment that I wanted to share with you for our summer series as we're kind of pausing our series in Luke, and we've been hearing different different guys preaching over this past summer, and we're gonna continue to hear them. And I wanted to share this with you. So if you have your Bibles um, open there, I'm going to pray for us, then we're going to dive in. Father, we come before you, and we thank you for this day. We thank you that we can worship you. We thank you that we can worship you together, that your people are here, that we desire to seek you. So we ask, God, that your spirit would open our eyes, that you would open our ears and open our hearts to the words that you have for us this morning. We love you and we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. We thank you for his steadfast love. And we thank you that he prays continually for us. We ask all this in his precious name, amen. So John chapter 17, it's this moment when Jesus is is praying 
for himself, for his disciples, and then for the future church that's to come. And it's interesting because this is a prayer just before he's about to be arrested. So I don't know if you're like me, but whenever I think of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, whenever I think of him praying just moments before he's about to be arrested, I always think to the moment that he's praying, you know, not my will, but your will be done, Father. But if you have it be, take this cup from me, right? And him sweating drops of blood in this moment where angels come and minister to Jesus. But there's more to that prayer that John reveals to us. There's more in it, in that. If we could look at the book of John like we would of the Gospels, if we were kind of to look at the four Gospels, I think John Calvin had it right where he says, if all four Gospels are set before us and have the same objective, which is to show Christ, the first three are going to show this earthly perspective from the ground up. In a sense, Jesus' body. But John seeks to show Jesus' soul. And I think he's right on, and I think that this chapter of Jesus praying depicts just that, because what we see in this chapter is Jesus praying for his people to be equipped in the word, to be protected from spiritual adversity and united in love to share the gospel with the world. It's not necessarily a framework of how to pray, it's a model of how Jesus prays for us. My hope is that we can be strengthened together and that we can kind of take away some some principles and learn from it. So what I want to do is I want to draw your attention first to verses 1 through 5, and we're going to read that together. It says, Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, The hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Since you gave him authority over all the flesh so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory that I had with you before the world existence, before the world existed. There's two things you should know about Jesus. If you don't know who Jesus is, we have plenty of people here who would love to talk to you about him. But there's two things that we should know about Jesus. First, Jesus is the Son of God. Second, he is always praying. I wonder if you think about that, if you consider that, that Jesus is always praying. While he's incarnate on earth, all we have of anything that he has done, it's either pre, there's, there's prayer beforehand, there's prayer during, or there's prayer after. If he goes on some type of missionary, on some type of ministry adventure, he either prays right beforehand or afterwards he goes off and prays, especially when he's getting in kind of the height of this 
of a, of a claim of people coming towards him, of crowds drawing near. He often removes himself to pray. Jesus is always praying. At some point, in some way, he's always doing so. So much so that his disciples would even ask him, how do we pray? Which is one way that we got our church name, the Hallows Church, through Jesus' instruction of how to pray, which is, our Father in, pre- in, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. But we see this because John 5, 19, it tells us that very truly I tell you, the Son of Man can do nothing by himself. It's in his nature as the second person of the Trinity, as the Son of God. So when we see Jesus praying, when we read his words and we read his prayers, not only are we paying attention to the subject at hand, but we're also seeing the nature of Jesus showing us who he is. His eternal posture is being dependent on the Father and following in obedience from that dependency. It's perfect communion. And these first five verses, I don't know if you got a little confused, but when I read it first time, I got a little blurry-eyed because I didn't know what was happening, honestly. I read it and I went, okay, I'm tracking with you, I'm tracking with you, I'm lost. What happened? I don't, I don't know what he's saying. Why is Jesus talking in third person, first off? Second, what's the glory and why is this going around? And then it started to strike me and I find it pretty interesting. So I wanna share this with you while you're looking and kind of reflecting on that. When we naturally want to pray and when we're reading prayers, we oftentimes pray in a type of linear step-by-step fashion. We pray about this, we pray about that, and we pray about this. And we like to take things in steps and in orders as our prayers, as the thoughts kind of come to our minds. But I wanna encourage you that Jesus here is not praying in necessarily a linear fashion, he's praying in a circular fashion. He's praying in a completely different kind of way which is one that shows, if we could organize it, it would be into like a visual, it would be like a circular model of giving glory to the Father and that glory moving to the Son, which he requests to be revealed to his believers, to his disciples, so they can give glory back to the Father. It's the circle of glory that Jesus is showing us how he prays. It's not a linear type of organized model that we would normally think about. It's Jesus praying circular. So with that, I hope that it kind of brings some clarity to you. But within that prayer of dependence, of communion with Jesus, we see this joy. We see this desire this closeness that he has for his people, that he has with his Father. And he's the very bridge that brings believers 
from a state of independence, of looking around desperately at, at what is true and what is reality, to seeing the truth, to seeing the reality. Jesus is the one who brings us together with the Father so that we can look to the glory of God and we can see the glory of the Father through the Son. And then we can express that gratitude of joy and of glory and enjoy it. This is what he has, and this is what Jesus is always doing. He's always praying. Hebrews 7, it tells us he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. For this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So a question that we could ask ourselves is, is there a way that we too could share in this type of communion and dependency on God? Well, Jesus says yes. It is a wholehearted yes. Because when we pray, we are learning to enjoy what Jesus has always enjoyed. When we pray, we are learning to enjoy what Jesus has always enjoyed since before the world existed. Communion with God is enjoying our dependency on the Father. But our natural posture, our natural tendency is a posture of independence. And it moves us away from experiencing the glory of the Lord. Becoming like Jesus is turning from that posture of independence towards a wholehearted dependence on God. And that is the posture of joyful communion that Jesus is praying for. So why do we do that? Why do we have this kind of natural tendency to turn away when Jesus is inviting us and Jesus is praying for us to turn towards. There's a writer named Flannery O'Connor. She's this American author. She writes just these really, really wonderful, wonderful stories. Some of them are fiction. Some of them are essays. Um, If you don't know Flannery O'Connor, slight shout out to Jake Hess. He actually has a blog that he writes about some of her stories. So, you know, promotion there for you, Jake. <laughs> no pressure. So if you don't want to read Flannery O'Connor, you can read Jake because you know him. <laughs> but Flannery O'Connor, she was kind of stuck in the same thing. She was, she was praying out, and as she was praying, she would write out her prayers in this journal. And she became aware of her dependency problem. And she wrote this prayer that resonated with me. She said, she prayed, Dear God, I cannot love you the way I want to. You are the slim crescent moon that I see, and myself is the earth's shadow that keeps me from seeing all the moon. What, am I, what I am afraid of, dear God, is that my self-shadow 
will grow so large that it blocks the whole moon, and that I will judge myself by the shadow that is nothing. I do not know you, God, because I am in the way. You hear that? It's so striking. I cannot love you the way that I want to because I am in the way. When I think about that cartoon, when I think about that image of all of the media, of all of the things that we are challenged with today, a lot of those things are displaying ourselves back to us. A lot of that stuff that we get consumed with that is in front of us day in and day out is really a mere shadow of ourselves pointing to ourselves. There's a more deeper, truer reality at hand. And Jesus is praying for that. We desperately need Jesus to pray for us. We desperately need a Savior to be praying for us, to commune with us through his spirit in a way, in the same, in the same way that he's communing with the Father. We need Jesus to pray for us to be protected from ourselves, to be protected from the world and to cling to the truth so that we may continue to become more like him. And that's exactly what he prays for in these next verses. Verses 11 through 12 and 14 through 15, I want to read this to you, where Jesus prays for his disciples. He says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. He's talking to the Father. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost, except the son of destruction, so that the scriptures may be fulfilled. Verse 14, I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So keeping in that same cadence, Jesus prays for his disciples to be protected. Not necessarily from physical harm, but from spiritual adversity. Persecution it has various degrees. Persecution has various degrees that come with the territory of being called a disciple. It could mean being persecuted in a physical prison in some countries and some brothers and sisters in the church that we do know who are being persecuted in that way. It could also mean being ridiculed at your school. It could also mean being ostracized from the community around you. There's varied levels of persecution, and it comes with the territory of being a disciple. But Jesus 
is not just praying for the protection of that. He's praying for the protection of not giving up. He's praying for the protection of his disciples recognizing the spiritual war at hand and remembering that the victory is won. Spiritual adversity, spiritual warfare is more dangerous because it attempts to convince us of who we are not. Right, friends, let me say that again. Spiritual warfare is dangerous because it attempts to convince us of who we are not. It places pressure on our worship and insists that we conform to something outside of what Jesus is calling to, calling us to. It attempts to surround us with pictures and shadows of what is not real. Think about the Israelites when they were living in Babylon. When they, kind of, when they got moved in there, when they got brought in, what was some of the first things that happened? Babylon sought to change all of their names. Sought to change their, their rhythms and daily life structure. Babylon was seeking to change the Israelites' identity, not just their geographic location. Babylon wanted something much darker that was very reminiscent of what spiritual warfare seeks to do, to change them into someone that they are not. But all the while, the Israelites would gather together. In small groups, they would gather together secretly, privately, some of them publicly like Daniel, and they would say, this, this is not my home. And I long and I desire for a better place, for a place that I truly belong. And my God has brought us out of the land of Egypt and he will continue to deliver us. And so within that spiritual warfare, there is a pulse of hope. There is a pulse and a current of faith that moves beyond what is purely outside of them, what the world seeks to do to change them. And that faith remains keeping them who they are because God is with them. Friends, that is so, so important for us to take hold of when we are constantly bogged down by the challenges and difficulties that this world brings, the constant pressure and the lure of becoming someone that we are not. But Jesus goes on to pray, not that we would just be protected from the spiritual warfare, but that we would know who we are and be sanctified in the truth. This is, this is verses 16 through 19, where he prays, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. That's something that he keeps repeating. Verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them 
so that they may be sanctified by the truth. Now the word sanctify there means to set apart. It means to be marked as holy. So Jesus set apart himself on earth as the Messiah, and now he sets us apart as his disciples. As Jesus was sanctified, we too are sanctified. And the challenge for us, while we're here, while we remain here, is to keep our eyes focused on faith, the unseen reality of Jesus, and not give up our difference for false things that we do see around us. There is a truer reality that we will see in time. But until then, we grow and we strive towards it while the Spirit sets us apart, sanctifies us. Does anyone know the story of uh, Nicado Avocado? It's kind of a funny name. It's a sad story. But it's this, it's this young man who's a vegan, young man, kind of hippie kid, who wanted to make YouTube videos and post them online. And it was just a random things that he would eat, vegan things. And as he was eating these different fruits and vegetables, avocados, all sorts of stuff, he, he wanted to get more views and he wanted to get more publicity and, and get, you know, get more views or whatever. But he began to notice and he discovered that the more dramatic his antics were, the more views he would get. And then he started to notice that the more food he ate, the more people were interested in how much he ate. And this led to this just downward spiral of seeking fame and letting his viewers tell him what he is. And it led to this final place of him making these videos where he has this giant table of food and he's eating this obscene amount of of food until he gets sick. And over the process of this time, of him making these videos, he he was once a a thin young man. Now he gains, now he weighs like over 300 pounds. He has, um, he's got different kind of mental issues, emotional issues, and people are watching him and all the while, his story is one that just reflects the sad reality of influence, of how easy it is for an online world to change someone if they're willing to be embraced by it. He became what the world wanted him to be. But he's not a unique picture. He's not a unique picture of the power that the world has over people. While we remain marked by the human condition, living in the world, our natural tendency is to be looking at what we do see instead of living in faith by what is unseen. And in that, there is a danger, and there is, there's a danger to not see ourselves as God's holy people, not to see ourselves as what Jesus has called us to, 
but to turn into that natural posture of independence and say, I, will f- I want to find my community on my own terms. But Jesus is praying against that. 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. So when we get stuck in this rut of this posture of independent living, of wanting to to be shaped by the things that we see around us and the things that try to influence us to tell us who we are not, remember that you have a Savior who is praying for you and is faithful to see you to completion. Friends, that is a deep comfort for me in my failures and in my struggles. And in those moments when it feels like everything kind of becomes tunnel vision, to know that Jesus has already recognized that and is actively praying as the result of my change. That is amazing. That is amazing. That blows any kind of legalism out of the water. That blows all sorts of self-works of trying to strive to become whatever it is that you're trying to become apart from Christ. It blows it away because you have a Savior who loves you, who is calling you to a deeper reality of grace. Jesus is faithful to see us persevere through every trial and temptation. But let's continue reading. This is verse 20 through 24 to see how Jesus then moves from he's he's praying for himself, he's praying for his disciples, and now he prays for, for the church. So let's read this together. Verse 20 through 24, it says, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. Friends, so before the church even exists, Jesus is already praying for it. Before the church even existed, in its visible form on earth, Jesus is already praying for her. And yet, we grow so easily just disenchanted by the church that sometimes it feels like it'd be easier to live on the outside, to love Jesus on the outside. But Jesus isn't praying for a universalist church He's praying for a unified church, one centered on enjoying the glory of God forever and living in unity as one body. This unity is reflected in this invisible church of this this people of believers, and it's reflected in these local, visible 
situated bodies expressed throughout their different church contexts or throughout their city contexts. We see the church as a people showing and living their faith out to show the world who Jesus is, and that church finds itself in these visible local expressions. And as the church, we gather together to see Jesus' glory. This becomes more tangible and more visible the more the body works in harmony as one. Meaning that each and every believer has value and a contribution to the whole. What Jesus is saying when he's praying for his church, he's putting value on you, church, believer. He values you. He values you to find the expression of his love that is being displayed throughout his city in the local context. It means you matter here. It means that Christians throughout the United States, throughout the world, especially now after being impacted by by COVID-19 and still feeling the, the ramifications of that separation, it means that the desire to want to be together, to live in harmony together and community together is vitally important if we are to see Jesus's glory within each other as a church. Jesus is glorified when we gather together, when we gather with others to see the wonder of his glory. But more than that, as the church, we are then equipped to share Jesus' glory. We see it. We see it in the lives of each other. We see the difference that Jesus is making in every area of our lives. And within that, we are then equipped to go share Jesus' glory. Sharing the gospel comes from the overflow of our worship. It comes from our individual and communal spiritual formation as we embody the unity of the Trinity. Jesus says in in verse 23, he says, I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and you have loved them as you have loved me. That should comfort us, that should comfort us because we see that Jesus loves us. Jesus isn't against his church. But how, how many times do we hear? How many times do we hear that it's all about the individual? It's all about a personal, personal faith. And the communal elements of faith are secondary. Friends, if we're going to follow Jesus in faith, it means that we cannot become disenchanted with the church, but that we need to love her and see ourselves as a part of that very body and recognize, recognize 
that every believer has value to contribute to the church as a whole as she expresses herself in the local context where she is. Jesus loves his church with the same tenacity that he loves the Father. So what, as, as we're reading this together, as we're seeing Jesus pray through this, what are some true realities that we can learn from, from Christ's prayer for his people? I've got three I want to share with you. The first is, is that Jesus has been and continues to be praying for you. I just hope that that sinks in, that Jesus has been and continues to be praying for you. A day hasn't gone by without Jesus praying. He is far more consistent than than we are. This reality, I don't want it to unmotivate you, I want it to inspire you. If your personal faith has been wavering, if you feel like you're in a sense of of disillusionment, of disenchantment, of of difficulty, discouragement, whatever it may be. Remember that Jesus is praying for you so much so that his very nature becomes reflected in your prayers. So you praying to him becomes a part of this communion and dependency that he is longing for for you. And even in, our dis- even in our inconsistencies, even in those moments we are discouraged, Jesus continues to pray on our behalf because he is faithful. The second is as a disciple and a part of God's church, you are deeply valued by Jesus. Jesus is praying for your protection against the enemy and for you to be sanctified in his grace. He loves you and died to set you apart for a holy and good work. I remember when I was going on missionary, uh, I was was with a group of of other like young 20-something missionaries. We were out and we were traveling in and we would, every week we would get kind of a new assignment of what we were going to do and how we were going to kind of be the light in this missionary place. And what I remember most, sadly, is that every Monday we would get these kind of new assignments of what we were going to do. And as soon as the missionary leader would say, okay, we are going to go over here today. We're going to pray for these people. You would get this silent groans of, uh. and all of it was just about needing to walk. Like we had to walk different places. We had to do hard things. We had to like do manual labor or different things. But it wasn't met with an excitement to be the church. It was met with a sigh of, oh, I have to work hard. Great. And the more that I reflect on that, the more that I think about my posture and how I contributed to some of that groaning, it left an impression against 
the reality that Jesus values me, that Jesus values my contributions to the kingdom here. And the same goes for you. Friends, if there's areas that are challenging for you, if there's areas that are difficult for you, ask yourself, what does Jesus think of this? What does Jesus think of me doing this? Because the more that we get down to it, the more we realize how deeply valued we are. Instead of finding our identity in the things we do, instead of letting our identity be shaped by the outside world of things that are are trying to tell us who we are, dive into Scripture to see what is most true about you. And let that be your motivation to be the church. The third thing is that Jesus loves his church and so should you. If Jesus is praying for his church to be unified as one body, to see and to share his glory, we need to recognize that Satan wants to build animosity and division within. It is easy to find problems. It takes no courage to attack each other. But it is much harder, yet eternally rewarding, to to sow unity and harmony within the church. That means you have to invest. That means you have to share. That means a commitment to Christ's bride. Jesus loves his church and died for her, as Ephesians says, to be sanctified and equipped for every hardship and endeavor so our community would see and share his glory. We simply can't do that if we don't want to be together. You see how simple that is? We just can't do it if we don't want to be together. And sometimes we have to fight for that. I want to leave us with this last closing phrase. It's these last few verses that Jesus prayed at the end. It's verse 25 and 26. If you read along with me, it says, Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you, and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. Friends, while we long to see Jesus, rest assured that he longs to be with us. But while we wait, while we serve, while we show his glory to the city of Seattle and beyond, we can pray and thank him for continuing to pray on our behalf for us, to strengthen us so that we might see and might share the love that he has for us. Let's pray to him now. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. 
We thank you, God, that you died on the cross for us so that we might be set apart, so that we might be joined with you through the Holy Spirit with the Father to love and to see your glory. And time and time again, amidst all the distractions that may come our way, to continue to turn our attention and our eyes to see your glory and to go out and share that glory. God, we want to see the difference Jesus makes in all of life. And we pray that you would continue to help us do so. We love you so much. In Christ's precious name, amen.